0: When George Washington accepted the responsibility of being the first leader of a brand new nation, he felt the weight of history weighing down on his broad shoulders. He knew that every step he took would be followed by generations to come, and every misstep would be criticized as well and might doom everything that he had fought for during the revolution. So how did this soldier on his way to becoming a statesman Pick a team of advisors to keep his path straight on the long march to nationhood. We'll explore that question with somebody who's the best in the business as far as I'm concerned. Her name is Dr. Lindsay M. Chervinsky, and she's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. Hello, history lovers, and welcome I'm your host, Dean Carianis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. A special welcome to everybody watching via our YouTube channel. This will be a Zoom interview today, and we will have some visuals for you, some pictures and maybe a little video, things that you can look at, and you'll find them enhancing your time travel experience. It's so important to me that you come here and you want to come back again, and you say, Hey, I'm learning something about history that I didn't know before. I'm meeting a person that I didn't know before. Of course, everybody knows George Washington, but not everybody knows about his cabinet. Lindsay Shervinsky is the perfect person to have written this book and to explain to us exactly what happened back then so we can better learn our future and be good citizens as we watch a cabinet taking shape right before our eyes in the current months of 2021. Lindsay is a historian of early America, the presidency, and government. Lean in now, dear listener, if you're weary of dry, powdered wig history, because her writing and delivery really engage audiences, and she brings history to life because it's alive for her. This is a timely book because we are dealing with a new presidency with the transition of power. There's a lot of cabinet offices to fill today, many more than in Washington's time. Lindsay Shervinsky is a scholar-in-residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies at Iona College, senior fellow at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, and professional lecturer at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. She earned her PhD in history from UC Davis, and you've seen her research in publications, in op-eds, and in books, Everywhere fine history is found. You can learn more about this guest, who's worthy of a cabinet appointment herself, by visiting her at com, or you can connect with her across the social media platforms. She is a Tiffle author, which to me means Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can find her on all those places, and if you enjoyed today's topic, you'll certainly want to, because she's always applying the history of the cabinet to to the issues that are in the news today. Okay, now that we've arrived back in the middle of the first president's first term, let's join Lindsay Shervinsky as President Washington assembles the cabinet. I'm joined via Zoom by Lindsay M. Shervinsky. She's author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show.
1: Oh thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you here and I was so excited to get the cabinet and I kept writing you every now and then you would write me and just touch base and let me know what you were doing. I see you all across Tiffle as I have started referring to social media because there's so many of them, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn and I would say boy there's going to be so much more to talk about and so I was putting it off. I didn't feel I could really capture the entire spirit of your book, but that's a great thing about it—that it's a living book. This book will never go out of style. It's not going to be. There's some here on my wall, for instance, one about Bork Cochran, who was Winston Churchill's mentor and a U.S. congressman of note, uh, 120, 130 years ago. And nobody's going to be jumping on that right now. I don't think that I would interview that author, and I—I I would, but he's probably 200 and dead, so that stops me. But. The thing is, your book is something that lives with us because Washington lives with us, and yet it covers something that hadn't been covered before. And that struck me because I've had one major publisher tell me that they don't want to review anymore. A newspaper told them we don't review any more books on Washington, Lincoln, and FDR because there's just this flood of them, and what new is there to say? Yet here in the cabinet, you give us a view of Washington's presidency that nobody has taken in the over 230 years now since he was at center stage. So that amazes me. I always love that when you can go back and look at a Washington and find something new. So how did that happen? How did this idea hit you? And how was it possible that nobody focused on this part of the electoral, I'm sorry, of the executive branch for all these years?
1: It's a great question. And I was befuddled by it as well when I finally came across the subject. So I knew that I, when I entered my doctoral program, I knew that I wanted to focus on what's called high politics or executive branch politics, presidential politics, that kind of thing. And I knew I wanted to look at the early republic because I've always been fascinated by how much power individuals had at that time to shape policy and basically create history. And I think that's partly because they were creating a government from scratch, but also there were so few people in office that they each had such an oversized impact on what was going to happen next. So I started digging around and reading various books to try and figure out maybe what a good angle would be, what sort of question hadn't been answered. And my advisor at the time suggested that I look into books on the cabinet because that might be a good way to to start. So I went to go search for them and I couldn't find any. And of course, there are tons of books on Jefferson and Hamilton and their relationship and their relationship with Washington. And as you mentioned, there's a trillion books on Washington but none really focusing on this institution. And initially I thought well surely I must have missed something there's no way that this book has not been written um, and so I you know I kept searching and I brought my advisor into it and he was also shocked and, and we discovered that basically there was one book published in 1912 which is no longer in print that looked at the legislation that created each department and that was it and I think maybe everyone assumed because There has been a cabinet in every presidency that it just had been done already or that like it was, of course, it was going to happen. Um, But the more I dug into the history, I discovered really that that wasn't the case and it wasn't inevitable. And the question of where it came from and why it emerged had to be told. So then I spent the next eight years hoping that, you know, no one would beat me to it. And uh,
0: thankfully, no one did. I like that your researching of the cabinet also it was very similar to my experience reading it and then reading the new things that were coming to light and your new observations. And that I've heard you say, I kept going back to it. I think this is your third draft, is it? So it was still living for you. I think it was and my fourth. Okay. I think four- I
1: rewrote it four times. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't one. advise doing that to people yeah. <laughs> who are trying to start from scratch. I don't advise writing it four times, but yes, I did. Yeah. I did go back and do just
0: to work. try to get the right part of it. And I also think of the name, the cabinet. And I think there's so many people there who are going to want to go back and look at it. If your book is there a hundred years ago on a shelf, people are going to want to pick it up because it's so significant. It's so relevant. It'll be relevant to their times too. Every time there's a new administration, you are going to get a call and we just have a new administration now. And so I know your phone's been ringing off the hook. You've been getting emails. What are the timeless lessons from Washington? for future presidents or for our new president that you think when they walk into the Oval Office, I'd like to think there'll be a copy of the cabinet right there sitting on their desk, waiting for them, maybe in the drawer with that letter from their predecessor. What can they learn when they step into the Oval Office and they realize I'm taking on this mantle of leadership and now I need to assemble a team that's gonna help me execute. And I took that oath, that was fine, but now I need to really do the hard work of making sure I live up to it and fulfill it.
1: Well, I would be thrilled if all future presidents wanted a copy. I would very happily provide that to them. Um, It would be delightful to be able to do so. The thing that's so amazing to me about the cabinet as I was learning about it is how much has stayed the same. And of course, it's a much bigger institution and there's a National Security Council and there are all these things that Washington wouldn't have dreamed of. But the idea that the cabinet is really supposed to be a private advisory body for the president. And so therefore is incredibly flexible as an institution and how a president interacts with the secretaries, what sort of relationships he or she has with them, whether or not he listens to their advice. These are all things that are really up to the discretion of the president. And I learned as I was going through both Washington's administration and then of course his successors, The cabinet is really the heart of the presidency. And if a president does well with his cabinet and manages his cabinet well and uses it effectively as a good tool for public outreach and coalition building and all those kinds of things that are required, and that's a very difficult task. Very few presidents have have met that high bar, but then they will have a phenomenal presidency. It's when the cabinets fail. That's really what undermines an administration. And, and people tend to place the blame of that on the president as they should because it's their job to manage it. But often the cabinet is the key to that success. And so I would encourage all future presidents to really think about compiling a team that first that you can work well with. But second, that is going to help you be the best version of a president that you can be, that will push back on, you know, bad ideas, will give you a difference of opinion, will help you represent all forms of Americans. Um, But also that, you know, is willing to sort of step in line with the administration once they've had the opportunity to share their thoughts, then ultimately be willing to get behind the final goal, because that really is what's essential.
0: And I like to point out when i'm reading a history book the things that strike me and of course you put yourself in that position although most of us will probably never have a role in that but i think there are times when you have to say no to somebody and that's so hard to do and i think of warren g harding who his father told him that warren you're lucky you were born a man because if you were a girl you would always be in a family way you can't say no to anybody and so pretty stark but that's what sticks in your head right (laughs) he's trying to say to his son you can't say no and Later, sure enough, Harding's friends are the ones that cause him trouble in the cabinet. And he says, I can deal with my enemies, my foes, but my friends, somebody saved me from my friends. And you may have somebody in there that you want to be, pre- that you want as a cabinet secretary, you may really like them. They may really want the job and say, I've been by you all this time, but you have to say no, or you have to say, I'm not as in the case of George W. Bush was an example where David McCullough was talking to Ted Kennedy, somebody was telling me, and they were walking across the mall and he was saying the president this, and we're going to stop the president on that. And and just really frustrated was Senator Kennedy. And David McCullough said, well, I don't know. I, I think that I've known George since he was you know, with his father. He's a nice guy. And Senator Kennedy stopped him and said, well, of course, we all like George. I'm not saying anything about George, but that's the president I'm talking about, not just <laughs> George, you know, or when Chester Arthur becomes president and Roscoe Conkling, the famous spoilsman who'd gotten him there with really no reason to be there other than to please Roscoe Conkling. He says he's not our Chet anymore. Now he's the president. So These are all things Washington would have had to deal with at his time, especially since he puts in Jefferson at state and Hamilton at treasury, and they both think they know not only what to do better than Washington, probably, or often, but they also have this fight between them, and it's up to Washington to straighten them out. And at this point, he can't grab them both by the throat and shake them. So he has to find a way to get what he wants from them, prompt those differing opinions, Without having those meetings devolve into, hey, Hamilton, nice shoes, or bringing up the latest thing in the newspaper that picked on Jefferson. So how did Washington do that? How did he get the professional out of his cabinet without letting it devolve into a personal feud and people going at each other the way that we might think of a business meeting sometime or or a sports team that goes at each other?
1: Sure. Well, I think there were a couple of key factors. I mean, one, I do think it's really important to note um, in our history books that have emphasized Hamilton and Jefferson so much. They tend to obscure Washington in telling that story. And that's understandable in some ways because Washington did really intentionally sit back and listen to the ideas that they brought to the table. That's the system he wanted to set up. But he was really unparalleled in stature. He had such a phenomenally sparkling reputation and was so well known across the globe that he didn't have any rivals. He didn't have any any peers really. And so even when Jefferson or Hamilton disagreed with him, which they did sometimes disagree with his final choices, there was never really a question that they were going to disobey orders. And I think to a certain extent, there have only been a couple of other presidents Eisenhower, um, maybe Grant, that have held that kind of uh, stature and, and captured the, natu- the, the um, national attention. And I think that's just partly a reflection of, you know, their experience and our country's kind of adoration of military figures. And there are, a lot of, there are a lot of things that go into that. But not too many people hold that kind of presidential authority. And so he was sort of in a unique situation. That being said, Hamilton and Jefferson were very big personalities and had no trouble voicing their opinions and frequently did. And um, even though Washington, you know, did really try and keep the cabinet a professional space, they often fought in a not And I don't think that they were, you know, battling out in rap like in the in the (laughs) musical, but they were battling. And um, there were times where Jefferson wrote in his notes that Hamilton would talk and pace for 45 minutes uninterrupted that's insane in a I meeting I mean just it. imagine how frustrating that must have been um, and but I think the key thing is is that for Washington, he didn't mind conflict. It didn't bother him. He was really good at separating himself from the squabbling. And so he intentionally called cabinet meetings and asked them to share their opinions and frankly, to debate with one another because it was a way for him to make sure he was understanding all of the information. It was a way for him to allow them to basically poke holes in each other's arguments. So he was getting the full picture of what he was trying to decide. And it actually was a really effective way for him to make a decision. And he had done so in the war with his officers and the councils of war. And he did so again in the cabinet. The only difference is that Jefferson really hated participating in those arguments. And he felt like it was super uncomfortable and super terrible. And so he didn't want any part of it and eventually did retire.
0: Yeah, he doesn't want any more of that. He preferred to be sitting on my guest writing letters about Guys that are in the cabinet and saying what they did wrong, and that's why I always say. In fact, in your honor, I put on my Adams historical site hat here, where both oh, fantastic! John, both John Quincy Adams and his wife, and John Adams and his wife are both buried, or all four of them rather, are buried there in sarcophagi. But I always say when I read that, don't don't say anything bad about the Adams. If you get in a time machine and go back, because they are going to write everything down. I mean, John Quincy Adams would write what he had for dinner. And down to the string beans, you know, the, the sides. And so the and everybody else burned their notes, or a lot of them burned their notes. Washington mm-hmm. has everything burned. And so they have those final words. And that's something with Jefferson, where he's writing there and he's picking on these guys. And it's sort of his Twitter feed, you might say, at the time, <laughs> where he's gonna say, But well, that he was such a weak little piece of linguine was Henry Knox, the secretary of war. And he's always he's always just a toady, which was your word <laughs> to uh to Hamilton. And so it's easy to overlook the two of them. You have Secretary of War Henry Knox, and you have the Attorney General Edmund Randolph rounding out George Washington's cabinet. And so we might think, okay, those guys aren't going to get the rap song, right? They're not going to be there in it. They're not going to be front and center. So what will readers learn about Knox and Randolph? Because I didn't want to leave them out of the conversation. And you certainly don't leave them out of the cabinet because those guys had to make themselves heard over these big personalities, not just at the time in the meeting physically, but also later in history to have their legacy remembered as more than just, oh yeah, there were these two other guys there. So what do they have to say to us now in the 21st century and how did they make sure they were heard then?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's a, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I think the starting point is so much of the history that we know from this period is frankly a reflection of Jefferson's writings and his very attentive shaping of the historical record and I say that intentionally because he was constantly curating what was going to be left to those that came after him and partly that's a reflection of the fact that he lived so much longer than Hamilton and and Knox and Randolph as well but he also was just so much more famous at his death than Randolph was, or then Knox was, that he was able to leave these records. He left them to the Library of Congress. He don't His family donated his papers to the Massachusetts Historical Society. And it was not unlike the Adams family in this very um, attentive sense of leaving a record to history and making sure that if you are going to have a historical legacy, then you are going to have a hand in shaping what that looked like. But as you said, Jefferson got really frustrated with Knox and Randolph because he assumed that they should agree with him. Um, He did not want for uh, for confidence. And so, for example, Randolph was, in theory, a Jeffersonian or Democratic-Republican. And, but he, he actually really wanted to be nonpartisan. And so he didn't always agree with Jefferson and sometimes he would agree with Hamilton and Knox. And so ran, so Jefferson accused him basically of being so wishy-washy that cabinet votes were split two and a half to one and a half um, which is one of my all-time <laughs> favorite phrases that Jefferson left in his letters. And what I find baffling about Jefferson is he assumes the only reason that Knox agrees with Hamilton is because he's, you know, Hamilton's Toady, as I described it in the book. And in reality, Knox had been in the military the entire war. He had served as Secretary of War all through the Confederation and into Washington's term. And the same experiences that shaped Hamilton's worldview, Knox had times like 10. And so it's just, it's, sure. it, it's a real, um, it reflects Jefferson's, frankly, arrogance that people wouldn't have their own self-view or their own you know self-formed view of how the world should be. And what I hope people take away from the book is that Washington did not treat the cabinet as, you know, tier one and tier two, and tier one was Hamilton and Jefferson and tier two was Knox and Randolph. That was not how it worked. Mm. He convened all of them together. He wanted to hear from all of them because they had really different opinions and perspectives and backgrounds. He valued his relationships very much with all four of them. And a great example in August of 1793, The cabinet gathers to discuss whether or not to request the recall of citizen Edmund Charles Genet, who was the French minister to the United States at the time. And Randolph was home in Virginia visiting his family. And so Washington convenes another cabinet meeting a couple of days later when he's back in town just to confirm that Randolph agrees with the rest of them. Now, if he thought... Randolph was somehow less than the others. That's not something he would have done, but he wanted to make sure all four really agreed. So I, I hope that people will will come away with a better sense of who Randolph and Knox are, but also how important they were to both the cabinet and to
0: Washington. I think of those meetings, I remind myself that not only do you have these two guys who mainly the other people are in the room saying, oh gosh, they're it's tense, right? because they're saying, oh gosh, they're 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 going gonna go at it and I I have to do my job. I can't just play peacemaker here and I'm not back in in you know, the schoolyard trying to settle this between the two people that I like or like the different degrees. And so they're already dealing with that physical stress and emotional and mental and trying to make their points and make their voices heard. but also, it's hot and humid. It's Philadelphia, you know they're often <laughs> yeah. dealing with with yellow fever. and so they, they have their own worries about, hey, don't don't sit so close to me. Or I don't want to be in this stuffy room with you. They're, they're not having a great time of it. And I think already for myself, when I think of a meeting, I don't think of something that I want to really go to much. I'll be honest. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. gosh, mostly they're, you don't have a dynamic figure. Mostly it's hashing out a lot of really small things. Here, though, they are very big things. And so Mm -hmm. it's exciting when we see Washington holding a meeting and when we know that there is that potential at any moment that he could let go with that temper that he's famous for, that he spent so long in his life trying to keep in check. So if you were going to pilot us back 230 years, you're going to bring us back to the time when Washington is just getting these ideas. He's in a council of war, but specifically to a cabinet meeting. Is there a moment that you would choose that would show us the cabinet working exactly as Washington designed it and what he needed to do and that you could lean to us and say oh yes see here he's doing that thing that I told you see how he's he's diffusing that situation He's going to draw them back to the topic.
1: Yeah, so I think that the meetings, he held a series of meetings in April of 1793. And that really kicked off a period of very intense cabinet activity because France had declared war on Great Britain. And essentially there was a world war and the United States was trying to stay out of it. Um, That's kind of the best way I can describe it simply. And so Washington convened these cabinet meetings to try and figure out what neutrality would look like, because it's actually a very complex concept. And he sent out a list of questions ahead of time for everyone to consider and so that they would have an understanding of what the topics would be and the questions that he wanted their input on. And then when they gathered in April, he used those list of questions as his meeting agenda, essentially. And they got through a couple of questions. And then agreement broke down because Hamilton and Jefferson were so wildly divided. So he basically called a timeout and they had a family dinner. And they went their separate ways and came back a couple of days later and resumed the conversation and they were still hopelessly divided. So Washington asked them to write out a written opinion of their perspectives and their position on the remaining questions. And they all submitted written opinions and within a couple of days, and then he ultimately made a decision based on those written opinions. And that very careful calculation of interactions was intentional and was by design because Washington ensured that he had the opportunity to hear them debate in person, um, to try and to come sort of to some sort of compromise. But then once that it was clear that that was not going to happen, he then had the opinions written down so that he could study them carefully. He could make a decision in his own time. He could make sure he had all the details. And then also, if there was ever any pushback, he had physical evidence about who had said what. And that was a very I think, important piece for his peace of mind. He never publicized the letters of the cabinet. He never felt the need to do so, but he always had them and he kept a very close record of them. And so that was very much how
0: he managed the cabinet. You're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Lindsay M. Shervinsky. She's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. You can find her at lindsayscherinski.com, or you can connect with her on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I just love that she's always bringing history to life for somebody like myself who I could easily wake up and just start reading a story about some obscure cabinet meeting and find it really exciting. I think that she definitely does that for people that maybe aren't a history nerd with a whole lot of history books behind them that read all this stuff all the time and have a ready anecdote about say a Franklin Pierce, which is coming up in just a minute. Talk about a great tease, right? (laughs) (laughs) But she's also giving us hard history and hard history doesn't have to be boring. And that's why I chose a quote by a Pulitzer prize winner, John Meacham. He writes of the cabinet in this important and illuminating story. Lindsay Shervinsky has given us an original angle, a vision on the foundations and development of something we all take for granted, the president's cabinet. Now, when I read that quote, I thought the cabinet is the simplest thing in your house. If you move into a house, you just expect there to be a cabinet. You stick your coffee mug in there and you forget about it. And yet here's Washington. He comes in. There's not even a White House, never mind walls, floors or a kitchen or a cabinet. He picks that spot and then somebody else has to go and build it all out. And the framers of the Constitution, when they frame not the House, but they're framing the Constitution, same same word, which I think is really, really illuminating of what Washington has to do. They don't want to have a cabinet that's modeled on the British cabinet. In fact, they never use the word cabinet. Washington never uses the word cabinet because they don't want those royal implications. But he needs somebody to give him advice. So what tools did they give Washington in that brand new house, so to speak, that he moves into metaphorically to get advice, get some personal counsel? And then when Washington sees that it doesn't work, how does he go about designing the first cabinet? in a way that won't offend the people in Congress who are always going to be jealous of their power and the things that they laid out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, I think, quite a conundrum for him. If I may, let me actually start with where the word cabinet comes from, because I think it it, it uh, illuminates a lot of the concerns that the founding generation had about advisory bodies and the challenges that Washington was dealing with. So in the mid 17th century, the Privy Council, which advised the king in Great Britain, had gotten so big that it really wasn't a useful governing body anymore. And the king had started to meet with a group of his select or favorite advisors in a very small room off of the privy council chambers. It was essentially a closet and it was called the king's cabinet. And so this group became known as the king's cabinet council and eventually council was dropped and it was just called the king's cabinet. And Americans knew that it existed and they knew that it was sort of where power was really located and that decisions were made here, but it was a very obscure group it wasn't clear who was in it or what sort of membership there was. It wasn't clear who had the final say and who was making decisions, and even who had advocated which policies so it was really hard to hold people accountable for what was happening behind closed doors, and that closed door sort of secret nature was really hand in hand with the word cabinet. So when it came time for the framers of the constitution to create an executive branch, they did not want to put in place a body that would become like a cabinet. They felt that it would either obscure transparency and um, eliminate responsibility at the highest levels of government, or would lead to a corruption and um, will be a way for a president to kind of hide behind his cronies. So they actually rejected several different proposals for different types of executive councils, including one that looked almost identical to the cabinet Washington eventually created. And instead, they gave the president two options. Both are contained in Article two, still there to this day, actually, in the Constitution. The first is that the president with the advice and consent of the Senate will make foreign appointments or will make appointments and foreign treaties. Now that advice and consent clause, they meant the advice part quite literally. They expected that the Senate would serve as a council of foreign affairs and would provide advice and be a participating body in the process of foreign policy. At the time, that makes a little bit more sense than it does today, because there were initially when Congress convened, there were only 22 people present and then 24 and 26. So it wasn't, you know, the 100 people we're talking about now. And they felt like senators would be really safe advisors. And I'm safe, I'm doing in quotes, because they were um, they were selected by the state legislatures. So they felt like the states could be trusted to pick knowledgeable, experienced, you know, good men for these positions, but they could also be removed if they had advocated bad policies. The second option is that the president may request written advice from the department secretaries on the issues pertaining to their department. And that word was crafted, or that, that, that um, grant of power was crafted very, very carefully. So the advice was supposed to be in writing so that there is a paper trail of evidence about who says what and who makes a decision. And the advisors are supposed to give advice on their subject matter of expertise. They're not supposed to be bloviating about things they don't know anything about. And so those are the two options. And uh, Washington fully expected to use these two options because, of course, he was at the Constitutional Convention and he had been there for all the debates and had heard all of these discussions and had seen the councils been eliminated when they were put forth. So when he went into his presidency, he really tried to use those two options, and in fact, didn't convene the cabinet for two and a half years. And so I think that's a really important fact yeah. to emphasize, just how um, not preordained it was. Um, and once he decided to meet with the cabinet, they were very attentive to their public reputations and to any concerns that you know Congress might have about this you know, being a little bit too British in its system. And so, as you mentioned, Washington never uses the word cabinet during his presidency. Now, we know that he knows that everyone else is using it. And the minute he retires, he refers to John Adams' cabinet as John Adams' cabinet, but he never uses it in his writings. And I think that that was just one way to try and protect against that sort of criticism.
0: I like that he is so conscious of those things. And at the time, a lot of people thought oh gosh this guy he just looks really good he's really tall and sometimes if you're very tall and strapping and athletic people will resent you anyway and here he's somebody everybody is looking up to and admiring so the people near him they say no man's a hero to his valet a lot of these people well he has one literal valet right that's with him during the war so mm-hmm. washington is always conscious of those things and i think that here we get in the cabinet, a view of him doing the practical work of governing that maybe we forget about. Maybe we think he did walk in, and even though he didn't want to be a king, that he was, and who would dare oppose the great Washington? And oh, it must have been so easy. If I was George Washington, I could get that annoying Hamilton and that that bloviating Jefferson to get along. They wouldn't dare disagree with me. And yet he thinks about little things like language, and that's something that it sounds so modern to us. We could see a president thinking of that today. For instance, the John F. Kennedy's, he says, don't call this a blockade of Cuba. They decide because a blockade is an act of war. Call it a quarantine. Okay, that doesn't really mean anything, but <laughs> it's, not, it's not a blockade, so we're not escalating. So that, that's the things that you get here in the cabinet. You get somebody who is an active Washington. He's not just the fellow on the dollar bill that maybe we know a few trivia pieces about. He's somebody who says, I have a job to do. And I need people to help me But as with any of us, when we have a job to do, you need to get people around you who don't have that job to do and aren't going to maybe take it as seriously. They have their own agendas. It's just human nature. And you have to get the best out of them. You have to squeeze them like a lemon and make sure you get what you need. And I just love that about your book is you could see him doing the work of governing. Right now, we're seeing so vividly the wheels of government turn. And here, Washington, he had to start putting those wheels on and say what kind of car it was going to be and where it was going to go. I just think... That's something really good, and it's something really great that you share with people. For instance, I'm mentioning your social media, your Twitter, at L.M. Shervinsky. You tweeted out that the most important criteria for a cabinet secretary is an ability to work together. So they have to be able to work together with the president. So while most of us indeed will never have that role, in our own lives, after somebody reads the cabinet, What do you think they'll learn about putting together a team or maybe serving on a team to achieve that greater goal?
1: Yeah, these are big questions. And I just want to I want to thank you for emphasizing the sort of day to day details of Washington's presidency. I think that we often as Americans forget about those things because it's much sexier to win the Civil War. It's much sexier to win World War II. But creating something from scratch is really hard when you don't have a model to follow and you're basically having to invent something. And that's what he had to do on a day-to-day basis. And so much of what was his biggest strength was restraint and knowing when not to say something and when not to do something.
0: (laughs) So important.
1: And it's really hard to measure. It's really (laughs) hard to say like this, this is the thing. Um, (laughs) But uh, one of the things that I really took away from his cabinet experience was that Uh, as a leader, what works for someone in one year doesn't necessarily work the next year or for the next person in that position. And he really switched up his advising options depending on what he needed at any given point in his presidency. And that is something that I think that presidents or, you know, any, any sort of manager should keep in mind is that just because something has worked in the past doesn't mean it's necessarily what is going to serve you best in this given moment. And then in terms of thinking about you know the team where Jefferson's presidency, or excuse me, where Washington's cabinet and his relationship with Jefferson really broke down is that Jefferson no longer trusted Washington. It got to a point where he was convinced that Hamilton had basically taken control and had brainwashed Washington. And so there was a period of time in the beginning where Jefferson disagreed with what Washington was doing, but he thought he still had Washington's ear. He thought that Washington was still in control. And then at some point that shifted. So it is perfectly okay. And in fact, I would say advisable and wise to have differences of opinions within a group, um, especially an advisory group, but they have to all have faith in either a common goal or a common person and um, adherence to that and loyalty to that. And when Jefferson lost that, that was when the cabinet relationships really broke down. And he, that's eventually why he retired. And after he retired, Washington never again put someone who was a Republican. This is again, a Jeffersonian Republican into the cabinet because he felt like that was just asking for too much trouble. And so the concept that most of your cabinet is going to be made up of people of the same party as you, even if it's not the same, you know, faction, same party uh, really comes from that moment.
0: You talked about how what works for one president may not for another or for their successor, and also about learning the lessons of Washington at the time or of your predecessor, perhaps. John Adams is the perfect example of that, because here's somebody who isn't in those meetings. They leave John Adams out of it. Talk about somebody who would, who would speak quite a bit. We're, we benefit from that because he wrote everything down and he talked so much. And in fact, it's one of the first acts of the Senate when he gets there and he thinks he's going to be lecturing the Senate. And so they decide to stop. <laughs> the vice president will never speak again and still doesn't to this day or they're not allowed to just go in there and start telling them stuff or what they're doing wrong or anything else. And so he keeps Washington's cabinet. And I think that that's such a Such an understandable moment. It seems very wise. Well, sure, it worked for Washington. If you move into a new house, you might rip out all the cabinets and put in some nice new ones. But sometimes you say, well, it was good enough for the last person. I'll keep them. And that's why I want to keep using that metaphor of the cabinet and what it is, because it's not something that was built into the Constitution, framed into it. And uh, Adam sort of treats it that way he thinks well I'll keep all Washington's people it'll be this great smooth transition at the departments and of course it doesn't work out for him so do you think that's the biggest failure the biggest early failure what do you think of when people ask you what's a big failure what's a great innovation for the cabinet because everybody can't just tap Jefferson Hamilton Knox and Randolph and say hey come on down
1: yeah yeah Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the John Adams moment is such an interesting one, and it often is overshadowed by the election that followed it, because the election of 1800 and the transition in 1801 was the first from one party to another. But I think that obscures the real tension and anxiety and fear that people felt in 1797. Americans only had one vision of what it meant to have a president, and that was Washington. That was who they knew. That was what they were comfortable with. And they were very familiar with transitions of power in other countries. And they had observed that when there was a transition in Europe, traditionally it was accompanied by war or death or a guillotine or a revolution or a civil war. I mean, it was really dramatic and bloody and quite terrifying. And so Adams was very attentive to this history and to this general sense that, you know there was this turning over of power that had really literally never been done Not, I mean, it had been done in like ancient Greece and Rome, but they also all knew how those, you know, republics ended and it was quite badly. So they were very, people were just really worried about it. And I think that his desire to keep Washington's cabinet really had the very best motivations and it was trying to provide this stability and continuity in this very tense moment again, it comes down to that loyalty question Though, is that he thought that these secretaries were loyal to the office of the president. Even if they weren't particularly close to him, they would be loyal to the office and they were loyal to Hamilton and he didn't figure that out until far too late. And it was a mistake and it was a miscalculation about where the loyalties of the secretaries actually lie. And so I think that was probably the biggest mistake at least in the first couple of administrations Um, But he does redeem himself at the very end and actually sets a precedent that most people don't really think of when they think of John Adams, which is that he actually fired a secretary. All of Washington's previous turnovers, and he did have them, had been either resignations or retirements and sort of um, volunteer departures, if you will. And when Adams decided to finally clean house, he offered Timothy Pickering, who was the secretary of state, the opportunity to resign. It was the gentleman's way out and Pickering refused. And I think he was trying to call Adams bluff. He didn't think that Adams would go through with it, which was a miscalculation because he did (laughs) and he fired him. Um, And that the letter is actually quite extraordinary because there's no fluff. It is, there's no fanfare, it's just, you are dismissed now. Um, and uh, it's a very dramatic moment. Um, it's excellent. And, but that was really important because it had been established when the departments were created by the first federal Congress that the president did have the right to unilaterally remove the secretaries. But until that actually is put into practice, until those things are tested, it's not actually really a right of the president. We've, you know, in our in our common, um, in our contemporary moment, we've seen That norms and customs are fine, but unless they're actually written down, they're pretty easy to dispatch. And so um, John Adams was the first to actually test this power and Congress didn't say anything. And so it put in place a precedent for his successors that they could, in fact, fire their secretaries.
0: It becomes very important when it is put in writing with Andrew Johnson, right? We have the Tenure of Office Act. That's really a spotlight on the cabinet at that moment that he says, I'm going to fire somebody and they say, no, we just passed this. And it goes all the way to his impeachment and his trial. So that's a dramatic cabinet moment. Another one that's more related to Adams is Millard Fillmore, who has the reverse happen. Basically, he isn't included in meetings either. So that's like Adams. He's kept out because president Zachary Taylor doesn't trust him, doesn't think he's on board. And then somebody comes to his door. I think he's just staying in a hotel and gets a knock on the door and they say, Oh yeah, by the way, the president's dead. And now you're president. And Oh, Hey, your whole cabinet is just going to resign now. And I, he asks them to stay, I believe. And they all say, no, we're out. We don't like you either. Taylor didn't like you. And so, Here's this guy who really has no experience as we think of it, who ends up thrust into the presidency. And it's not just he's going to sit there quietly and it's a really smooth, easy time. This is a time when the southern states are threatening secession. And so he's stuck alone. He's a man on an island. So I wanted to ask you, having written the cabinet What were some of those moments that did provide stability? Because that Fillmore moment really shows how the cabinet could have stuck there, could have helped him, as it does with Theodore Roosevelt when McKinley dies and he says, I'm going to keep all of you. I'd like you all to stay, actually asks them to stay because they might have all just decided that they would leave and let him fill it in. But because it was a violent death, and here's another case of death, what times have there been that the cabinet maybe without us even noticing when we're living through that moment, has made for a smooth transition from one president when there's the sudden death of the president that came before them.
1: Well, that Theodore Roosevelt example is such an interesting one because a lot of the big players in McKinley's cabinet were planning on resigning. Um, it's sort of de facto practice that when um, a president wins a second term or there is a death in office, then the secretaries offer their resignations, but are not. But most presidents usually ask people to stay on at least for a little while, and Roosevelt really, you know, kind of had, um, uses the sleight of hand to get some of them to agree to stay, and then once. They've agreed to stay and he sort of stabilizes the situation, then he gets rid of a bunch of them. So he really sort of masters that political moment. But I think that that your question really hits on a huge central factor of the cabinet, which is... When cabinets are going well, we don't tend to notice them. They don't appear much in the news. The things that they do well tend to appear to be the president's successes. It's only when they're going badly that all of a sudden we take big notice and history takes notice and newspapers take notice. And all of a sudden their scandals and their failures are very much front page news. And that was true in the 1790s. And it's true today. That has been a a universal fact of the presidency. So moments when the cabinet has really been a stabilizing factor. Um, of course, Lincoln's cabinet—you know—we can't not mention Lincoln's team of rivals, and and that was a very intentional selection by bringing in people throughout the Union, by bringing in politicians that had been Democrats and now were sort of Unionists, by bringing in different representatives from different factions. Lincoln was literally trying to stitch the country together through his cabinet. And other presidents have used that same model. So I love talking about FDR's cabinet because he really had two separate cabinets. His first two terms, he had a pretty universally democratic cabinet. He had representatives from different factions of the Democratic Party. It was very focused on the New Deal and trying to combat the Great Depression. And then after winning his third term, he actually cleans house in a lot of the military cabinet positions, and he appoints died in the wool Republicans that had served for Hoover and Harding and Coolidge and I mean people who had unimpeachable Republican credentials, because he wanted the country to appear united when it was going into a war. He wanted to have a bipartisan war effort. And he knew that, for example, Frank Knox, who was the secretary of the Navy, they agreed on no social policy, they agreed on almost no domestic economic policy, but they agreed on how to fight the war. And so Roosevelt knew that bringing them into the cabinet would not be too disruptive because they could focus on what the values and the principles they agreed on and leave the rest to other people. And so that is a time when the cabinet really functioned as a way to really bring the country together and both, side, both parties together behind this war effort.
0: So much of the symbolism in politics is really practical because even though you think, well, okay, he's going to try to find somebody from a state that he lost. He's going to try to reach out to the other party. Now it's pretty much required. You have one person from the other party that serves in your cabinet. But then again, there's a lot more cabinet departments. And if you want to just stick somebody in, but it doesn't make your job easier, I don't think, as a president. It's much more complicated because you have all those spots, and people want to be secretaries and want to be close to a president. And we like to think that they have the best motivations for that. And for me, when you mentioned there about presidents and going through and about FDR, I think Hoover is the star, right? He lives the dream of a cabinet secretary where he gets to go ahead and become president. (laughs) So he's a guy who is also interesting. And I want to really encourage people, I keep mentioning your social media because you keep these stories alive. We can't cover them all here today, but we're hopefully giving you a little tease and people will pick up the cabinet and want to experience them themselves. Since I said that you don't order or you don't offer powdered wig history earlier, <laughs> I want to mention a little friend of yours, one of the ways you do that, because your dog Quincy, named after John Quincy Adams, he's just an adorable dog, is a real animal lover myself, somebody who had a career in the veterinary field. I loved seeing him on there. As soon as he popped up, I said, I had to ask him about this when we spoke and then i discovered in the cabinet that you have a very similar story or at least about a a similar dog story with general charles lee's hounds so charles lee is in those councils of war with washington doesn't come into the cabinet meeting with these dogs but tell that story and tell us how you think quincy would work if you had to go in there if you did end (laughs) up and say you get a call from the white house and president biden tells you hey Can you come and, hey, I got this new dog. We're seeing news stories about his dog, right? Why don't you bring your dog along? The dogs could play. And you say, oh, oh, do you say, oh boy? Or (laughs) what do you do? when you're going to be in a cabinet meeting with Quincy.
1: Well, thank you so much for bringing that up. I I am a firm believer that historians should not... um, you know, deny that we have other parts of our lives and and being human and real and accessible makes our work more accessible. Um, and my dog is a huge part of my life. So that is obviously going to be a part of the, the, you know, brand I show to people. Um But yes, John Quincy Dog Adams, uh, Quincy for short. I have so <laughs> many Washington dog stories. It's almost hard to know where to begin, but Charles Lee is particularly funny because he had no social skills with humans, um, but he adored dogs. And he had a huge pack of hounds that pretty much went everywhere with him. It was not actually uncommon for military officers at the time to have dogs. And in fact, at one point during the Revolutionary War, two really, really beautiful dogs came into camp and Washington discovered that they were actually the dogs of a British officer. And so he sent them back to the British officer with a lovely note, um, which kind of shows the, the standards and values of 18th century warfare, which I think is hilarious. But Charles Lee would often bring the hounds to, you know, wherever he was going. And Um, Sometimes that included councils of war. And they, if anyone has had a hound, which I have one, and he is quite loud, and I cannot imagine having a pack. They are not small dogs. They are not quiet dogs. They are not particularly unobtrusive dogs. And so he, you know, could be a very disruptive presence, (laughs) which brings me to my, you know, concern if I was invited to the White House, first I have to say, I'm delighted that dogs are back in the White House because there is a long and rich and beautiful history of presidents and dogs. And if you're gonna have that kind of lawn, how can you not have a dog to play on the lawn? Um, I would be delighted to bring my dog to play with major and, um, I think champ is the, is the older yeah. one major, yeah. major and champ. Um, and Quincy is actually a lovely house guest. He is not great with children. So as long as, uh, he, he feels very strongly that they're terrifying. So as long wow. as the Biden, uh, some of the Biden grandchildren are not around, he would be a lovely house guest.
0: He behaves himself. That's good to know. <laughs>
1: yeah. or, or he also um, really likes cats and not in a good way. So as long as they're, <laughs> I think they're getting a cat. So as long as the cat is not not around.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm picturing them in the meeting there. And and you said about their personality. And I'm, I thought they always think that there is a duck or something somewhere in that room, you know, and they picturing a Christmas story, you know, and the dogs are all running through the house and they know that she, they know that the turkey's there and it's just one of those human moments, and I think that that's what I mean by not powdered wig history. I think we look at the cover here of the cabinet, those of you watching on YouTube, and that is a from a cigar box. So it's an idealized portrait, I'm sure. It's just people sitting there. It looks like a very serious, boring meeting, like I was just <laughs> mentioning. And yet it's certainly not that. Yeah. I so appreciate you bringing that to life. I well, actually, to have, oh, your,
1: your mention of the turkey reminds me of my favorite Washington dog story, and I think this one is so essential because it shows that he actually really did have a sense of humor. So Washington also was a dog lover, and he had all different kinds of breeds, but his favorite dog was apparently a very large hound named Vulcan. And Vulcan, apparently one day they were sitting down to the afternoon dinner and Martha had ordered a very large ham prepared for the meal. And Vulcan came in and jumped up and grabbed the ham and ran out the door with it in his mouth. And Martha was of course horrified because guests were there and they were supposed to eat, you know, the ham for dinner. And George thought it was hilarious and just burst out laughing. And, um, I love that story because first of all, hounds are so naughty. Mine is so naughty too but um, I like that he found it
0: funny. You don't think of Washington laughing a lot. Right?
1: <laughs> no, so. but that's why it's important to it's tell these stories
0: because yeah. so he important. was real. Yeah, he was, and he had a, a job to do and it's easy to look back and think it was easy and all those things must've already been there like the cabinet itself. And we also are thinking right now we're gonna be, you're gonna be having your phone rung off the hook and getting those emails, right? Cause we're gonna be filling up many more cabinet positions Than Washington had to in the new administration and kicking the tires of these people and watching the hearings and things like that. There are many mistakes that people made. There's things they can learn here from picking up the cabinet, and you can learn them in your own life and whatever team you're building or serving in. But I did want to mention Franklin Pierce because I teased him a little bit earlier, because he has. The distinction usually of being such a sad president, such a hapless president, he has that tragedy with his son being almost decapitated with him uh, in front of him, rather, and his wife on his way to the inauguration, comes with a broken heart, dies of alcoholism, just doesn't get it together. But he has one accomplishment that's noteworthy as far as the cabinet, and that's that he keeps them together for the entire four-year term. That's something even the great Washington is unable to do, although he does start two and a half years in, as you mentioned. So... Franklin Pierce brings in that cabinet and he almost acts as a prime minister with them when you read and see how he defers to them. And he's trying to get a bunch of people to vote more or less on what we're going to do next. So that does not work out well he just doesn't take the reins of command here's a guy who passes out faints unfortunately twice in the Mexican War <laughs> does Franklin Pierce because he gets injured and by the end he says just leave me here by the third time that it happens
1: <laughs> and
0: just I'd rather die on the battlefield and have people keep saying oh that's the guy that fainted because his horse stopped short and he you know hit himself and hurt himself so badly and hit himself unfortunately and passed out so anyway he doesn't really make a very good go of it so since Pierce failed at that. Other presidents like John Adams have tried so hard. Let's wrap up with what your suggestions would be. I am really hoping, as I mentioned to you, that the new president will get a copy of your book, but a new president is always going to be very busy. Any president is. So what would you recommend that if a new president is reading a copy of the cabinet and they're assembling their own team of rivals—they're trying to put somebody in there that'll give them what Washington squeezed out of the lemon of his cabinet. How would you suggest that they get somebody who can deal with a crisis, but also not cause problems themselves?
1: Yeah, it's um, as I as I say in my writing, it's it's a nearly impossible task to pull together a really effective cabinet. And so my heart goes out to whoever's job it is because it just is really, really challenging. But I think there are a couple of good things to start, or good places to start, I would say. The first is it's really helpful to learn from past presidents, but you can't try and replicate exactly what someone has done. Because when you try and do that, the presidents that have tried to replicate um, or continue past cabinet practices, it just doesn't go well. But somehow the new mix of personalities just clashes like oil and water and you end up with a lot of scandal. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is, it's I am delighted that at least the nominees we've seen thus far are incredibly competent, experienced people. It's a really good idea to have people who are qualified in office. And that sounds like a basic step one, but it hasn't always been the case. And I think it is really important to make sure that the people that you have in office are really, really qualified. And that's because each cabinet position really actually wears two hats. They have their advisor component, but then they also have the manager of this big bureaucracy. And if they don't have experience in that field, they can't manage the tasks of that department. And so I think that's the second part. And then the third, I would say, is it's really easy for presidents to get frustrated with people who don't agree with them. The pressures of the office are extraordinary. And I, we, you know, mere mortals like us can't really even fathom the decisions that are on their shoulders on a day-to-day basis. And so I can understand the temptation to surround yourself with people who think like you and who say yes to your ideas. But that is a very, very bad idea because um, you'll you'll lead yourself astray. You'll lead yourself into bad decisions. And so don't um, avoid the temptation to do that and to try and keep people around you who think about things differently and aren't afraid to tell you them because that's really important.
0: And watching people that aren't intimidated by you either. I imagine that, yeah. the, that you'd want to just, if you were with George Washington and he said, hey, what do you think of this? You'd say, Okay. Yes, I, I mean that would be <laughs> well, I mean, hard with anyway. Yeah, that's
1: kind of how the Senate reacted when he first visited them, and that's kind of why <laughs> that didn't work. But and that's you know I think that's one of the benefits of having people around that have known you a long time it can also be you know a downside because then you're not necessarily bringing in new ideas. But it is important to have people around who are, who aren't afraid of you and who can say you know you're being a bonehead please stop um or that's a really bad idea don't do that so hopefully hopefully the president um our new president has has those people around him
0: Well, that's the balancing act, and fortunately you and I don't have to do that, but hopefully we balanced our responsibilities here today. People were able to enjoy it if they were really deep history buffs, love the revolutionary period maybe, but also if you've never read a book about the founding before, I can't think of a better book to recommend than the Cabinet. You get to see Action Washington. He's in action, not just as a warrior, but here he's become a statesman and he's gonna to put together that first presidency. We still feel and live with the legacy of the cabinet today. And we have Washington to thank for that. Lindsay M. Shervinsky, Dr. Shervinsky, thank you so much for sharing the cabinet with me today. I could go on and on about this, Fortunately, people don't have to hear me talk about it, but they can follow (laughs) you online and find you discussing. And I'll certainly chime in there from time to time with some of my observations about things like Franklin Pierce, other exciting cabinet stories, and they are that exciting. Certainly the cabinet here is exciting. I wish you the best of luck with the book. And I so hope that it turns up on the Resolute Desk for new presidents in the future. It should be required reading.
1: Well, me too. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and appreciate your support. And um, I'll be sure to let you know if I get that presidential call.
0: Sure do. I will definitely. I'll. I'll be able to tell because cabinet quality will improve <laughs> after they've read your book. So thanks again. Thank you. Again, the book is "The Cabinet: George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution." As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I also want to mention something about today's guest. A lot of authors really push their book hard, and I know I had one host in particular on a TV show I worked on who we felt that by my book almost became his catchphrase. In fact, it really did, and it was too much. People don't wanna feel in an audience that you look at them as customers. Well, that's why it jumped out at me when I heard Lindsay Shervinsky saying to people, hey, get my book from the library, or you can borrow it from a friend. She's passionate about the work and so she just wants you to read her book. She's not just looking to capture your dime. That was very endearing to me, so I felt that she deserved an extra little plug because I will say it if she won't, and that is if you have the means and the interest Definitely pick up a copy of The Cabinet. Those of you watching via YouTube can see it right behind me here on my shelf, where it will have a place of honor, and I'm sure I'll be referring to it many times over the years. My thanks to Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky for joining us today and sharing that passion that she has for the colonial period and also for the very first presidency and how Washington assembled his team. This was a great insight, and I think it'll really help all of us as we watch President Biden fill out his cabinet. Remember to find our guest at lindseyshervinsky.com and to follow her on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Instagram is the key one because that's where you're going to get to see those dog pictures of Quincy. And those are a lot of fun. I just expect him to start barking the Gettysburg Address to me, the way he's wearing that top hat. Just as a very dignified dog, despite what she said about maybe how he would be in cabinet meetings. You can subscribe to both of us on YouTube as well. And for more historical perspectives on first presidential terms on those days with Washington when the nation was young, I'm going to recommend a few other books and you can go back in our archives and find those interviews. First up is Dr. David Head. He's the author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and The Fate of the American Revolution. Then we have Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. They discussed Washington's wartime leadership, which he then carried over into his leadership of the cabinet. That was titled Valley Forge. Then there was Peter Stark, who took us way, way back in the Wayback Machine. He introduced us to the indispensable man when he was still quite dispensable. That book is titled Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. Finally, since we talked about firsts today and institutions being created, I want to recommend Fergus Bordwich, who brought us the book The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with Lindsay Shervinsky and myself today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name?